I'm going to pick up our reading today in, uh, in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, guide us as we have this time remaining this morning to be in your word. Through the working of your spirit, would you take your word and illumine our hearts that we would understand what you've said and why you've said it. We would see and recognize its implications for our beliefs, for our actions, and then enable us as we step forward in obedience to what you're teaching. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses preceding uh, verse 11 and on through have talked about testimony, witness. We were learning last week in verses 6 to 10 about the three witnesses or testimonies to the gospel itself. The first two of the witnesses and testimonies to the gospel was found in the water and the blood. And we talked about what that meant, the water referring to the witness that God gave at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved son. Uh, the blood refers to the cross, the shed blood at the cross, and the witness that was given there, not only by the miraculous actions, but by God's initiation and in tearing the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top, and demonstrating that in Christ's death, a different way to access him was finally made available to humanity. The third witness was the testimony of the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, that God gives a testimony to the truth of the gospel by the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts hearts when they hear the gospel. That's part of the benefit of the Holy Spirit's work. We read that today in John 16. You know, what's he do? He convicts the world about sin. One of the testimonies of God, the witnesses of God to the truth of the gospel, is what the Holy Spirit does in our heart when we hear it. The Holy Spirit convicts hearts. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says to us that there has never been a single person in this world who heard the gospel who was not convicted at the deepest level of their life about its truth. But the conviction of God is not irresistible. We have a response ability to what do we do to the conviction. And the Holy Spirit makes sure everybody understands the truth of it. But we have to make a decision if it's true. Will we bow the knee before Christ? Will we, will we admit our sin and receive Christ as our Savior? Or will we continue in stubbornness to say, no, I don't have to do that, or no, I'll rely on my own good works, or whatever? What are we going to do in response to the gospel? These three witnesses work together to confirm the truth of the gospel. They underscore the reality that everybody's going to be without excuse before God when they stand before him. Because God says, hey, listen, I went out of my way. Not only did I send my son into this world, I gave you three, uh, three critical proofs, testimonies, to the fact it was all true. And you've rejected it. You've turned your back on it. Uh, in fact, as we ended yesterday or last week, those who reject it are actually calling God a liar. Uh, they are saying, what this conviction is I feel within, 
is not from you. It's not really you saying this. I, maybe it's my environment. Maybe it's my childhood that I grew up in. Maybe it's whatever. It's not God who's really communicating to my heart, this is the truth. And he says, if you do that, then you're lying. It's what the Bible means by blasphemy of the Spirit. Because blasphemy of the Spirit was when in Jesus' ministry, people said, this isn't from God. Because they were rejecting the convicting work of the Spirit about the truth of what was being shed. And God said, well, all sins can be forgiven. Why? Because if you believe in the one who died on the cross for you, no matter what you've done, you can find forgiveness for it. But one sin can't be forgiven, and that's to reject the means of forgiveness. <laughs> if you reject the one whose death provides a solution to sin, there is no solution. And so you are, you are left with no way of standing before God. And then he ended with the message that... If you accept the three testimonies and you respond in repentance and faith to the truth of all of this, I'll give you a fourth witness. I'm not going to give it to the one who hasn't responded. But if you respond to it, I'll give you the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Holy Spirit, as part of the three witnesses, convicts a heart about the truth of the gospel. The fourth witness, which comes from the Holy Spirit for one who repents and believes, is that I'm going to work within you and give you a confirmation. In other words, it's not just that this is true and you're convicted of sin, but I'll confirm to you that now you're the child of God, that you've been given the privilege of being born anew, adopted into his very family. And so there's a witness of confirmation for those that have trusted in the Lord. Now, verses 11 to 13 that I read to you today build on that same theme of testimony and witness to something. And he's shifting now to the promise of eternal life. And as we look at these verses, we learn something about the nature of what he means by eternal life in the scriptures. We discover, and obviously would assume we would, that that eternal life is found only in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we're going to find it and get it. And we also discover here that God says we can know whether we've got it or not. So let's look at those things together. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have life. Pretty straightforward equation there. Uh, God's great testimony, he has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, this word testimony is the same word, witness testimony, that was being used in the preceding verses. Martyria in the Greek. We get the word martyr, by the way, from that. But it, it doesn't mean somebody being, being always giving their life for something. It just means a witness, a testimony. Uh, just came to have some other meanings attached to it, because certainly those who were martyred for their faith were giving testimony and witness to the truth of it. But the word itself just means literally a witness, in a legal sense, giving testimony at the witness stand. You know, there's a, there's a, you're before the authorities in, in, a, in a trial or a hearing is taking place, and you're giving a message at the witness stand. And so all of these testimonies that we saw before related to the gospel are all tied to that sort of idea. And the same thing is true here. God says, listen, I'm, I'm giving a testimony on the witness stand. I'm, you know, here's a hearing going on, and I'm, I'm giving testimony. This is the testimony, a confirmation of the gospel truth, the testimony of eternal life. And here's my testimony, God says. I promise the gift of eternal life to people who are truly dying, but who accept that reality and turn to me, who accept the three witnesses that I gave previously about the gospel. He says, I promise for those people 
I am, I am giving them the gift of eternal life. Now, by the way, the gift of eternal life is kind of an irrelevant gift if someone's not convinced they're dying. And you say, well, what, what's, what's that all about? Well, the, the reality is, humanity, apart from the gospel, thinks I'm okay, you're okay. I mean, there may be a few of the really black marks of history that are not going to go to heaven, but everybody else pretty much is, because God's kind of that sort of God, and he'll just kind of accept people in, and, you know, we were at this, at this uh, funeral and that funeral, and people are saying, well, they're in a better place now. The answer is, they are in a better place now if they know Christ as Savior, but not if they don't. No matter how much they were suffering here, they're worse off now than they were here. That's the biblical picture. People say, well, Pastor, can't you come in and give us some comfort in the face of this? And, uh, and I say, well, I can't give you any biblical comfort here, but I can share with you a biblical challenge. Don't let this be the message of your life that you die without professing Christ as Savior and resting in Him, because it'll be bad news for you too. But God says, let's learn the benefit of counting our days and understanding the truth. Let the lesson of somebody's death remind us that, hey, this is all there is, and we better be ready to appear before the Lord. People who aren't convinced that they have any accountability ultimately before God and therefore have any real concern about how eternity is going to work out, basically respond to the gospel with, well, so what? You know, here's just a bunch of empty religious words. It doesn't mean anything. After all, God just kind of overlooks all that. Isn't he interested in sincerity after all? Hey, listen, the devil's exceedingly sincere. He knows exactly what he's going after. Uh, no, God's not interested in... He wants us to be sincere, but sincerity doesn't cut it in terms of having anything to stand before God on. He says, no, no. The biblical truth is that everyone is dying apart from Christ. The true condition of everyone who hasn't turned to Christ as Savior is that they're dying. Romans 6.23 put it, it says the wages of sin is death. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. In the third chapter, verse 23, in the sixth chapter, he says, hey, the wages of this is death. I mean, that's the condition of humanity. We are dying. People say, well, I don't feel dead. Well, you are dead spiritually. That's the truth. Until you've come to know Christ. That's, that's the way it is. I was thinking how Ephesians 2 puts it. Uh, in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? You were dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of humanity. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. <laughs> okay, the biblical picture. You're dead unless you know Christ as Savior. That's the truth. Uh, and the more clear we can make that truth in the sharing of the gospel, the more the point of the gospel is able to be shared. That's the great tragedy of when people don't talk about that reality and just talk about, oh, just follow Jesus, and 
it's irrelevant, ultimately, if you don't understand the real reason he came. He came because we were lost. He came because we had no solution to our accountability before God. He came because we were separated from God. That's why he came. Now, as we come to know him as Savior, he does work in our life. He gives grace. He came that we would have life, have it more abundantly, and all that. Certainly, that's true. But it's irrelevant to anybody who hasn't accepted the fact of why they don't have it now. You know, you don't have it now because you're not right with God. And you've got an unsolvable problem of sin that has never been repented of and drawn under the cross. This eternal life that is part of this testimony is more than just merely continuing to exist. And this is, again, one of those fundamental misunderstandings in the culture and in the world in which we find ourselves. Here's the fact, biblically. Everybody lives forever. The Bible says everybody lives forever. Eternal life doesn't mean that. Death doesn't end somebody's conscious experience and existence. It transitions us consciously. Either transitions us into the presence of Christ or transitions us into the presence of disaster. Conscious in both cases. No, no, the gospel isn't about people who would cease to exist, who now have a way to continue to exist. Everybody continues to exist biblically. The issue is, where and with who? Eternal life, as the Bible uses that phrase, is not talking about endless existence. It's talking about unending relationship with the one who created us for relationship with himself. That's what eternal life is all about, being in right relationship with him. Not merely existing, but having full and purposeful and satisfying experience of life. Feeling complete, completed, fulfilled, forgiven, accepted. It is the ability to experience life as God created it to be experienced. A little bit of that type of life that was in the garden prior to the sin. Where they were cast out of the garden, no longer in perfect relationship with the Father. So that's, eternal life is the ability to get back to that. To be in that sort of relationship. It's to be in a life now and forever that satisfies the deepest yearnings of the human heart because God created us for that. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Why? Because God made us so we'd be restless. We aren't complete unless we're in right relationship with him. Human pride says, well, I can be complete in myself. Well, that's only pride's misunderstanding of it. Nobody's ultimately satisfied in themselves. We were designed for relationship with God. God created us that way. And this eternal life that is being offered us in Christ is the restoration of that. Not endless existence, endless life. Satisfying, complete, being who God created us to be. It begins now when we turn to the gospel, and it goes on forever. In Revelation 21, he talks a little bit about the long-term aspects of it. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, 
And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, like the garden. And he says, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, and neither will there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For all those former things are passed away. Now we have a different life, a full and abundant life, satisfying, complete, a feeling, you know, that uh, Maslow talked about, uh, the, the psychologists, philosophers have talked about self-actualization. You know? In Christ, we will be self-actualized in the best meaning of that word. We will, we will be all that we have the capability of being, and we will be right. We will feel completed. Uh, but somebody can go into eternity not feeling that. And they will go into eternity feeling completely disjointed and incomplete. That's the promise of eternal life. And he says, listen, God's given us this eternal life. The life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever doesn't have the Son of God does not have the life. The promise of eternal life is found only in Christ. This life is in his Son. John 17, verses 1 to 3 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent, no, being in relationship with. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Not exist only, but live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Later on in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the life. That's, that's how we find it. Here's, here's the sobering fact. In 1 John, in John, and throughout the scriptures, we discover this truth. Those without Christ don't have life. Oh, they're alive, but they don't have life. They don't have life. Do you see the finality and the gravity of all of that? Whoever doesn't have the Son does not have life. It isn't whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have all the life they could have. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life, period. What life was designed by God to be. It's not that they just got a smaller percentage. They don't have that life at all. And such people, apart from the Lord Jesus, face an eternity without that life, without the Son, separated from the Father, That's what their eternity is. Lost and shut out from the very presence of the one in whom life is found. The one who makes who we were created for. The one who makes us satisfied and complete. They are cut out of that. That's what I think is behind 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, which says, talking about those who disobey the gospel, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. They are facing an eternity shut off from God, shut off from relationship with God. 
and shut off as a result from everything that has its origin in God and nowhere else. Like what? Truth, love, joy, peace. No way to find any of those things ultimately apart from the Lord. And if you've been shut out of his presence entirely forever, there's no way that's going to be true of your eternity. People talk about, well, you know, to what, how literal are the flames and how literal are the, are the fires of hell and all of that stuff. Well, I believe they're literal, but to me it's beside the point. The issue is the real hell is that you have an endless existence with no alternative now, cut off forever from being in relationship with the one who created you. You are cut off from life. It's that finality. It's not like, well, we'll give you some... Some years in penance, like the old distorted Catholic teaching, you know, that, uh, you know, we'll have some purgatory period and if we just do enough things, gradually you'll get out of that into baloney. The Bible doesn't say that. Those without Christ are in a hopeless condition. That's the point. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, to those that group, so that you may know you have eternal life. God says, listen, here's my promise. You can know that you have that eternal life, that full future and present time. You can know it. God wants us to have assurance. Remember, part of the message in 1 John has been tests to know that we know him. Uh, confirmation so that we can have assurance. God wants us to be a confident people. He wants us to be able to rest in his love, not always afraid, well, I stumbled this week, maybe I'm lost. No, no. He wants us at peace in the assurance of the cross and the wonder of what we have in Christ. He doesn't want anybody to have assurance who doesn't know Christ. But if we know him, he wants us to be rest in him and, and secure in him. But that word earlier in the book of 1 John, the word know is almost always a translation of the Greek word nosko which had to do with experiential relational knowledge. He shifts gears here, and he uses in verse 13 the Greek word adon or oida, which means factual knowledge. Knowledge based not on any subjective feeling, but objective fact. And I like that shift here, by the way. He says, now, those of you that have known my son, and uh, you know you know, he know he's your savior, I'm going to talk to you about something that's not tied to your emotions, not tied to any sort of level of your relationship with me. It's tied to the fact of my promise, if you've turned to Jesus. You can now have oida, factual knowledge. You may know that you have eternal life. It's not just hope so. Not just, I think I have eternal life if I feel close to the Lord today. You can know it. You can rest in it. Your eternity can be there. He says, I promise that sort of knowing for you. And that sort of knowing is directly tied, as he put it, to believing in the name of the Son of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So that you can know. That's the promise. This word believe, by the way, is a form of the Greek, of the Greek word pisteuo, which, from which we get the word faith. It means to be persuaded about something. And as a result, to trust and rest in it, to act in light of it, to have a settled conviction that leads to action and attitude in someone. 
That's what the Greek, that's what the word faith means biblically. It's not talking about some subjective inner feeling. It's talking about an objective action of confidence and rest and trust in something. So here's the question, and we'll end with this today. What's true of your heart about Jesus Christ and the gospel? Because that's been the whole point. These are the testimonies of its truth and all that. What's true of your heart? Number one, are you persuaded that Jesus is who he said he was? You know, the one word made flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation, which was part and parcel of the whole book, uh, that, he, that he's the very son of God. Are you persuaded he is who he said he was? That when God gave the testimony at the baptism, this is my beloved son, he meant it. You know, uh, you know is it, do I believe that? Am I persuaded this is true? And then are you trusting as a consequence of that in the atonement for our sins at the cross? I mean, is that truly where you are accepting and acting on it? Saying, I'm resting my future on that truth. I'm resting my future on that truth. Is that the case in your life? How settled are you in the conviction about the truth of the gospel? Have you repented and believed and are resting your eternal future in his hands? This is not a matter of coming to the front of a building, although it can certainly be expressed that way sometimes. It's a matter of what's true in the deepest level of your heart. I've known different people that have said, you know, I finally know that I'm saved. And I said, well, tell me about that. And he said, you know, we were having communion and you were going over the new covenant versus the old covenant. And it suddenly occurred to me, that's what I believe. That's, that's what I'm resting in. And my message to them is, at least from that point in history, in space and time, you're saved. Now, you may have been saved before that because you were trusting in it. But at least now you know, I know at this point in time that I trusted in this. I'm resting my future in this. Getting some overtones here. Uh, To believe means to act upon. To have at a set point in time admitted our sin and hopeless condition, to have agreed with what God said about it, to have turned away from our rebellion and pride, to have actually chosen to receive Christ and rest in what he's done. That's what believing means. Not intellectualism, although it involves that. It's that whole body of things. And so the very question before everyone, having to do with where they spend eternity, not whether they will live forever, but where will you spend eternity, is have you at a point in time decided to rest in the new covenant, rest in what Christ has done? Have you done it at a point in time? And if your answer is yes, then you're believing in the name of the Son of God. If your answer is no, then you're not believing in the name of the Son of God. That's what it means. It's not intellectual assent only. Have I acted on this? And if the answer is yes, I have, then God's great promise to us, he says, well, you can know. Settled fact, objective truth, oida, adon. You can know. Know. You got eternal life. Doesn't matter what you feel like on a given day. It doesn't matter whether you feel close to me or far away from me. That's all tied to how life's unfolding and whether you're stumbling or surrendered. Or, I mean, there's all kinds of factors there. He says, here's, you can know. You can know absolutely. We can know where we're going. I like that. I like that. 
isn't it wonderful this balance of getting to know him relationally and getting to know in objective fact form the things upon which eternity can rest? He's knit them together in this masterful way in the scriptures. I hope this day is a day where everybody in here can say, well, don't always feel necessarily as close to the Lord as I'd like, but I know on whom I believed. I know who I'm resting in. I know what I'm confident about for eternity. And therefore, I know I have eternal life as the Bible defines eternal life. Not merely endless existence, but life in all of its richness and fullness for which I was created by God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to be in your word together this day. Thank you for these wonderful promises, these testimonies that we see in this fifth chapter. And, O oh Lord, I pray that each one of us in this day, in the silence of our own heart, can observe the truth. Am I trusting in these things? Have I acted on it? Settle within us, Lord, which is your great desire, because you loved us enough to send your Son to die for us. For ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.